Now tonight we're going to see what the Lord Jesus had to say about the judgment, the final judgment. But in order to understand this subject about the final judgment, it's necessary for us to return to what took place in heaven before this world even existed. Please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, we've read this passage before quite a while ago when we dealt with uh, the end of evil, but now we want to read it in the context of the study that we're uh, into tonight. It says there in verse 12, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations! For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above all the stars of God. And by the way, the stars represent angels. So he's saying, I am going to rule over above the stars of God, above the angels. And then he says, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. And by the way, if you read Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2, it says that Jerusalem, the city of the great king, is in the sides of the north. So this is taking place in Jerusalem. Not the earthly Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem. He continues saying in verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Here we find a description of a being who thought that the government of God needed to be done away with because he could establish a better government, because Lucifer could establish a better government than the government of God. So Lucifer began questioning the government of God and saying, you know, if I were placed on the throne, you would be free. You would have all of these restrictions that God has placed on you. After all, you're wise angels, you're wise creatures. So there's no reason why there are laws that have to restrict your freedom. You should be able to live in harmony with what your own heart dictates. And so he started causing an insurrection in heaven among the angels. Now before we read a passage in scripture about that insurrection in heaven, that civil war, we might call it, in heaven, because it was an internal war, it wasn't an outside enemy, it was an enemy from within. Before that, we need to go to Ezekiel chapter 28 and read verse 16. There's a very important little detail here that I want us to notice. Uh, some people wonder whether there was a law that God had when Lucifer fell from heaven. The answer is yes, every government is based on law. And what Lucifer questioned was the law of God. Notice Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 16. And we're only going to read this one verse, even though the whole chapter is dealing with the fall of this being. It says there, By the abundance of your trading you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. What did Lucifer do? He sinned. Now we need to go to the New Testament to the beloved disciple of Jesus under inspiration to discover what that sin consisted in. Go with me to 1 John chapter 3 
And we'll read verse 8, first of all, and then we'll go back to verse 4 to see what the nature of this sin of Lucifer was. You see, we've said that he questioned the law of God. He questioned the justice of God. He said that the angels weren't free. They were slaves. We're going to notice in a minute that when the devil introduces sin into this world, he uses the same argument that he used with the angels in heaven. But notice what it says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from Mount Sinai. Because some people say that the law started at Mount Sinai. Since when has the devil sinned? From the beginning. Now what is sin? Let's go back to verse 4. It says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Or as the old King James Version says, sin is transgression of the law. Now my question is, how could Lucifer transgress a law that did not exist? Must the law have existed in order for Lucifer to have sinned or broken or transgressed the law? Yes, God's law is everlasting and eternal because God's law is a reflection of who he is. It's a reflection of his character. In other words, God is the law personified. It tells us in written form how God is. And so the Bible tells us that this being, Lucifer, thought that he needed to get rid of the law of God, and he needed to occupy the throne of God, and he needed to give freedom to the heavenly beings from this unjust law. And so the Bible tells us that there was a war in heaven. Go with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, and we'll read verses 7 through 9. Revelation 12, verses 7 to 9. It says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, that is, the dragon and his angels. Nor was a place found for them in heaven anymore. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now how many angels was Lucifer able to persuade? Let's go back in the same chapter to verse 4. Speaking about this same dragon, it says, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. How many of the angels was Lucifer able to conquer? One third of the angels. And folks, when you realize that according to Revelation chapter 5, there are millions of millions of angels, billions of angels, as it's described there, a third of the angels was a significant number of heavenly beings. Do you think that the arguments of Satan or of Lucifer must have been pretty powerful for him to be able to convince a third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion? Do you suppose that his arguments were deceptive enough that he could take a third of the angels with him? Absolutely. Now, I want you to notice uh, in Ezekiel 28, in verse 16 and verse 18, a very interesting expression. Ezekiel chapter 28, and we'll read verse 16, and then we'll read verse 18. 
It says in verse 16 about this being, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Now what is that, by the abundance of your trading? No, that word trading is a Hebrew word which is translated differently in two other texts of the Old Testament, and those two other texts give us an idea as to what Lucifer actually did. Let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 22 and verse 9. Ezekiel chapter 22 and verse 9, it's the same Hebrew word now that we're going to notice in this verse. But it's not translated trading, it is translated in a different way. It says there in chapter 22 and verse 9, if you are men who slander to cause bloodshed. The word slander there is the same word trading in Ezekiel 28. Now also it is used in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19. If you go back with me to Leviticus chapter 19, we'll notice another way in which this is translated, this same word. It says there in chapter 19 and verse 16, you shall not go about as a tail-bearer among your people. So what does trading mean? It means to be a tail-bearer. It means to be a gossiper. It means to be a liar. That's the reason why Jesus, in John chapter 8 and verse 44, said that the devil is a what? A liar from the beginning. Now, you say, why is it translated trading? Because we use that as a, an idiom, even in English. We say for it, when somebody tells you a lie and you know that the person is lying, you tell them, you can't sell me that one. I won't buy that. Why? Because he's trying to deal in lies. And so that's why the word trading really means that the devil in heaven tried to sell the angels what? Lies. Lies about whom? Lies about God. Third of the angels cast out. Have you ever wondered why God did not destroy this being Lucifer right away? Could God have obliterated him from existence in an instant? Oh, of course he could have along with all of the millions of angels that went with him. God could have done it. But what would have happened if God had done this? The loyal angels would have said, hmm, we wonder whether what he was saying is right. He said that God is a despot, a dictator, that his law is restrictive, that he does not allow anybody to think differently than he does. And look, this apparently proves it because here was Lucifer who questioned God and all. what did God do? He blotted him out from existence. We wonder who the next person is going to be who will be blotted out of existence. And the angelic beings would have served God out of fear rather than out of love. And there would have always been the possibility of another rebellion to overthrow this individual, this dictator in their minds who had destroyed Lucifer because Lucifer had questioned the government of God and the law of God. And so it was necessary for God to allow Lucifer to show his program of government without the law. 
God needed to allow Lucifer to establish his style of government so that the whole universe could see what his style of government led to. And you can see it today. Let me ask you, the world today, is this a desirable place that you would like to spend eternity? Under the rulership of Satan? Under his lawless government? Absolutely not. Because transgression of the law does not lead to happiness and joy. Transgression of the law leads to slavery and sickness and sorrow and death. Not to life, as Lucifer had said. And so the heavenly beings have questions in their minds. They say, this Lucifer, you know, he was cast out of heaven. We wonder whether maybe he's right about some of the things that he's saying about God. Even the loyal angels had questions in their minds that needed to be answered by God. In other words, God had a cosmic mess on his hands. Let me tell you, folks, the problem of sin is not in an earthly problem. The problem of sin is a cosmic universal problem because sin did not begin on this earth. Sin began in heaven in the very presence of God. But the situation got even more complicated because then Lucifer was cast out of heaven. He came down to this earth and the only place that he could be on this earth was at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God told Adam and Eve, listen, You can eat of all of the trees of the garden if you want. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Because if you eat of that tree, you are going to die. Did God give them a commandment? He most certainly did. Now, do you know that in that commandment were contained in principle all of the other Ten Commandments as well? You say, how's that? Let me ask you, when Eve ate of the fruit of the tree, was she stealing? Yes, Uh, When Eve ate from the tree, did she break the commandment, thou shalt not kill? Yes, because she not only brought death on herself, but upon the whole human race. When Eve looked at the fruit, did she break the commandment that says, thou shalt not covet? Did she break the commandment that says, honor your father and your mother, her heavenly father? Yes. Did she think that she could make herself God? Yes. So in this one command were contained all of the principles of the Ten Commandments which were later amplified on Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments in written form in a more definite form than the principles that we find in the Garden of Eden. Now, I want you to notice that the devil comes down to the tree and Eve is there, and the same thing is going to happen at the tree that happened in heaven. Let's read starting in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. You say, what does this have to do with the judgment? Well, folks, we can't understand the judgment unless we understand this. Because the judgment of God has much more to do with solving the universal problem of sin than with condemning sinners to destruction or rewarding God's saints with heaven. It's much more than that. The judgment has to do with the vindication of God against the accusations that Satan has raised against God. Now notice Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? He's trying to instill doubt, isn't he? Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, now she's going to correct the serpent. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. She was embellishing what God had said. God had said don't eat it. He had not said don't touch it. 
Verse 4. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. In other words, God is a liar. Who was the liar? The devil. So how is the devil trying to make God look? He's trying to make God look like a liar, like a deceiver. In other words, he's tarnishing the character of God. But it gets worse. You remember that I mentioned that the devil had said to the angels, actually Lucifer had said to the angels in heaven, that they were slaves because they were subjects of law and that they needed to proclaim their independence? Well, he's going to say the same thing to Eve. Notice what it says in verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. In other words, God wants you to be what? Blind. He wants blind service. But if you eat of the three, no more blind service. Your eyes will be open. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What had Lucifer said in heaven? I will be like the Most High. Now he says to Eve, you will be like God. And folks, you know, the argument here was powerful. Because God had not really shown Adam and Eve his work of creation. In other words, Adam and Eve had not been there when God created everything. They were created last. And so they had to accept the idea that God was the creator by faith. Because they hadn't seen God create anything. And so Eve says, hmm, I wonder why God told us not to eat from this tree. And the devil says, I'll tell you why. It's not because you're going to die. But because God knows that if you eat of this tree, you're going to be like him, and he doesn't want any rivals around. Do you know what the devil is actually insinuating? He's insinuating that at some point God ate from the tree, and when he ate from the tree, he became God. And then when he ate from the tree and he gained the powers as God, he says, hmm, what can I do to make sure that nobody else reaches my level? So when he creates Adam and Eve, he intimidates them, and he says, listen, God has told you that if you eat of the tree, you're going to die. Don't believe that. It's because God knows that if you eat of the tree, you're going to be God like him. And he doesn't want any competition. He doesn't want any rivals. He wants you to render him blind service. He wants to set down the rules, and he simply wants you to obey. The Bible tells us that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, and they brought all of the misery that we're presently seeing into the world. Now the panorama was even more complicated. Because God not only had the heavenly intelligences with questions in their minds about what had happened in heaven, but now the heavenly intelligences are wondering about what also has happened on earth. But God had a providential plan in allowing sin to come into this world. Notice I didn't say that God caused sin to come into this world. God had a providential plan in allowing sin to come into the world. Because it was here that the devil was going to be able to show the style of government that he would have established in heaven. In fact, you know the Bible tells us that the devil took away Adam's position as the ruler of this world. And Satan became the ruler of this world. In John chapter 12 and verse 31, Jesus called the devil the ruler of this world. In Job chapter 1 and also chapter 2 and verse 1, when this heavenly council takes place in the days of Job, the representatives from all of the universe come together in this heavenly council meeting. 
And among those who are present, there's a discordant note. Among them comes Satan, the adversary, the accuser. Now why was he there? Who should have been there? Adam should have been there. Because he was the father and representative of the human race. He had been given dominion over the earth. He had been given rulership over the earth. He should have provided a benevolent, loving rulership of the earth to promote life and health and happiness. You remember in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus was tempted by the devil. The devil said, look, you don't have to go to the cross. I'll make it easier for you. He says, if you just bow down and worship me, just for a second, I will give you back all of the kingdoms of the world because they have been delivered unto me. Who delivered them unto Satan? Adam. And so God in his providence allowed sin to come into this world. This world is a laboratory. You say, what do you mean a laboratory? Do you know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9, if you go with me there, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul tells us something extremely interesting. Once again, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9. And uh, I want you to notice what he says here. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle. You know what the Greek word is? It's the word theatros, where we get our word theater from. In other words, Paul is saying, we have been made a theater to the world, both to angels and to men. We are the theater of the universe, and the universe is watching this living, moving picture that is taking place on planet Earth to see who is right, Lucifer or God. And they're comparing the styles of government of one and the other. So when God allowed sin to come into this world, he allowed it to show what style of government Lucifer would establish with men going against the holy law of God. Now when Jesus died on the cross, the devil was judged. And when Jesus died on the cross, the world was judged. I want you to notice that in John chapter 16 and verse 11. John chapter 16 and verse 11. And by the way, this is one of the judgments that the scripture mentions, but it is not the only one, as we'll notice in a few moments. John chapter 16 and verse 11. And let's read verse 8 so that we can catch the context. It says, and when he has come, that is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is what? Is judged. Let's notice also John chapter 12 and verse 31. John chapter 12 and verse 31. And then I'm going to explain to you what this means, that the ruler of this world has been judged. John chapter 12 and verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be what? Will be cast out. 
The world was judged in Jesus. Now you say, how's that? Do you know that the sins of every person who has ever lived on planet Earth were placed upon Jesus Christ? Without exception. All sin was placed on Jesus. In other words, the whole sin of the world was judged when it was placed on Jesus. All the sin of the world was punished when it was placed upon Jesus. And you say, well, if that's the case, then we're all going to be saved. Hold on. Don't go too fast. Now, Jesus made a payment for the whole world. But that does not mean that everyone in the world is going to be saved. And let me explain why. Let's suppose that there's a bank. We'll call it the bank of the universe. And in that bank, there are enough funds that have been deposited by a magnanimous philanthropist to pay the debts of everyone on planet Earth. Credit cards, mortgage, car payments, spousal support, child support, doesn't matter what the bills are. The philanthropist has deposited enough money in the bank for everyone's debt to be paid. There's only one catch. You have to go to the bank and make the withdrawal. The money can be there. But unless you go and withdraw the money, you still remain in debt. Folks, when the Lord Jesus died on the cross, the sin of the whole world was paid for. Jesus put enough money in the heavenly bank of his merits to forgive the sins of the whole world. But there's a catch. You must come to Jesus. You must come to the bank and you must claim the payment. So the world was judged. And what a tragedy that the sin of the world was judged and there's still going to be people who are lost because they don't come to the bank. They prefer to stay in debt. Now, folks, when Jesus died on the cross, the ruler of this world, Satan, was also judged according to Jesus. Now, what does that mean, that the ruler of this world was judged? Listen, Adam and Eve gave up their dominion and their kingdom because they gave in to Satan. Isn't that right? In other words, when they sinned, they listened to Satan. Satan took away Adam's dominion. However, when Jesus came to this earth, was the devil able to conquer Jesus? No. Jesus conquered whom? Satan. And therefore, because Jesus conquered Satan, Jesus now took the kingdom, which the devil had taken from Adam when he led Adam to sin, and now Jesus takes that kingdom, having conquered the devil, and he says, the kingdom is now mine. Let me tell you, he only takes the kingdom legally at this point. Because he hasn't empirically and physically taken the kingdom of this world. Or this world wouldn't be in the shape it's in. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, he has legal claim to this world. He's only waiting till the moment when he will actually take the kingdom and dominion empirically, physically. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So in other words, who is the ruler of this world now? No. The ruler of this world now is who? Jesus, the conqueror. Let's go back to John chapter 12 and verse 31. 
John chapter 12 and verse 31. This is on uh, the Thursday before the crucifixion of Jesus, the day before the crucifixion of Jesus. And it says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be what? Cast out. What does that mean, cast out? Now he's going to be cast out. Oh, it's because of the death of Jesus. Because if you read verse 33, it says that Jesus was speaking about himself being lifted up and dying on the cross of Calvary. In other words, what is it that took away the kingdom and the dominion from the ruler of this world? The death of Jesus. When Jesus said, it is finished, he had conquered and the kingdom was taken back by him legally. It's no longer his. And so Jesus says, the ruler of this world is what? Cast out. Cast out of where? Let's go to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. See, the devil wants us to think that he still has legal control over the world, that he still has dominion of the world, that he still is the king of the world. Well, I'll tell you what, the king of this world is no longer the devil. The king is Jesus. Of course, the devil wasn't the king in the first place because he was a usurper. He was a robber. But still Jesus had to come to take it away from him. Notice what it says in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. It says, then I heard a loud voice saying, where? In heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God, where is God? In heaven. Where did the devil go in the book of Job to accuse Job? In heaven. Why? Because he represented what? This world. But now it says, once again in verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been what? Has been cast down. Does the devil represent this world anymore? No. Who represents this world? Jesus, the rightful ruler, because he overcame Satan when he said, it is finished on the cross of Calvary. But then verse 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. What is heaven supposed to do? Oh, rejoice! They got rid of this pest who went there day and night to accuse the brethren to accuse Job, to accuse others. No longer. Heaven says, good riddance. He's gone. We don't have to put up with him anymore. Praise the Lord. But then it says, whoa. You see the change of tone? <laughs> Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, whoa. Rejoice, whoa. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has what? A short time. Do you know a wounded lion is more dangerous than a well lion? The devil has received a death wound on his head. As it says in Genesis 3.15, his head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And his head was crushed. 
But now we must deal with other aspects of the judgment. See, there was a certain sense in which all sin was judged at the cross. However, it still remains to be seen who is going to benefit from that, right? In other words, individuals need to come and show whether they accepted that or they rejected that. That's where we're going to talk a little bit more uh, fully about the concept of the judgment. The devil, he was judged at the cross of Calvary, but he's still alive. There's still some things to say about the judgment of this world and the judgment of Satan. Now let's go to John chapter 7 and verse 51. And I want to read a text that doesn't have uh, anything to do directly with what we're talking about, but it gives us a principle which will help us understand what we're going to talk about in the next few minutes. John 7 and verse 51. Here, uh, Jesus is about to be tried before the Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus, the man that we've studied about before, says some very wise words. Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? You see, for most Christians, the judgment simply means that, you know, uh, in the last day, Jesus will say, okay, you were righteous, come up here with me, you were wicked, go burn in hell. That's the extent of their concept of the judgment. But the biblical concept of the judgment is far more extensive than this. You see, the purpose of the judgment is to convince the whole universe that God has been right in the way in which he has dealt with sin. The purpose of the judgment is to vindicate God before the universe. After all, let's just think about this for a moment. Does God keep records of our sins in heaven? Does the Bible say that he keeps sins written in books? Yes. Does God keep a record of our good deeds in his books? Deeds that come as a fruit of faith. Yes. He keeps our tears written up there. Because someday we're going to appear in the judgment. Is that correct? Now, of course, the reason why God keeps those records is because he might forget. You know, God says, I better keep a careful record because if I don't, I might forget something might pass me by. Listen, folks, does an omniscient, all-knowing God need books? Does an omniscient God even need a judgment? Of course not. An omniscient God doesn't need records. He doesn't need a judgment. But who needs a judgment? We do. The heavenly angels do. And because the beings of the universe are not omniscient, they don't know everything, it's necessary for God to open the books to show how he decided each case to show that he was righteous and merciful in the way in which he dealt with sin. Do you know that the, the purpose of the judgment is not only to reconcile the earth, but also to reconcile heaven? Say, have mercy. Where does the Bible say that? Well, let's go to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. You know, when we read the Bible, we have to read it carefully. There's a very interesting two verses here in Colossians chapter 1. And verses um, 19 and 20. Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. It says there, For it pleased the Father that in him, in whom that is? In Jesus. All the fullness should dwell. And now listen to this. And by him, that is by whom? By Jesus, 
by him to reconcile all things to himself by him. What is he going to do through Jesus? Reconcile all things to him, right? Only the things on earth. Uh-uh. It says, whether things on earth or things where? In heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. You know, when the devil did what he did to Jesus, all during his ministry, and when he was suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, and when he was beaten, and the crown of thorns was thrust on his head, and people slapped him and spit on his face, and there were demons behind moving these crowds on, the heavenly beings became indignant. Any ounce of sympathy that they might have had for Satan at this point was totally torn away. So he was not only cast out of heaven physically as a representative of this world, but he was also cast out of heaven in the sympathies of the heavenly beings. So one of the purposes of the judgment is for Jesus to reconcile with himself not only the things on earth, but also the things where? In heaven. Now let's talk a little bit about this idea of the judgment. You know that God's system of government and judgment is shadowed by our earthly system of jurisprudence. You say, how's that? Well, in an earthly system, you have, first of all, an investigative phase of the judgment. Is that right? In other words, we call it the trial. Is there any sentence without a trial in these United States of America? No. You have a trial or an investigation. What is investigated? The evidence. Isn't that right? There's a jury. The trial goes forward. What happens if the individual is found guilty after the trial or after the investigation? Sentence is what? Pronounced. This is what Nicodemus was saying. He was saying, hey, according to our law, is an individual condemned before he has a chance to defend himself in court? Would we do that? Now, after the sentencing fades, what do you have? You have the execution of the sentence. In other words, the, what was given in the sentence is actually implemented with a particular individual that went through the trial. So you have three phases. You have the investigation phase, the trial phase, you have the sentencing phase, and then you have the execution of the sentence, whatever it is. Do you know that God's system of government follows the same process? And the key to understand it is to understand the two resurrections that Jesus spoke about. Go with me to John chapter 5, and let's read verses 28 and 29. John chapter 5, and verses 28 and 29. We've read this before, but now we want to read it in a different context. The key to understanding the biblical concept of judgment, the concept of Jesus of judgment, is the two resurrections. It says there in John chapter 5, and verse 28, Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are where? In the graves will hear his voice. Where are the dead? In their graves. Where will they hear his voice? In the graves. And then I want you to notice that there are two resurrections. It says, and come forth. Those who have done good 
to the resurrection of what? Of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of what? Of damnation. Now, when do these people who resurrect in the resurrection of the righteous receive their reward? Let's read it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which we read last night. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When do they receive the verdict, in other words, what the verdict pronounced in their favor was? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and let's read verses 15 to 17. It says there the following. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. When do the righteous living and the righteous dead who resurrect when Jesus comes receive the reward? At the second coming of whom? At the second coming of Christ. This is known as which resurrection? The first resurrection. The Apostle Paul says the dead in Christ will rise first. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And let's start reading at verse 4. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. This is speaking about events during the thousand years. It says, and I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, who had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ, how long? For a thousand years. So let me ask you, those who had been beheaded and killed, do they resurrect when Jesus comes? Before the thousand years begin? Yes. How could they reign with him a thousand years if they don't resurrect at the beginning of the thousand years? Doesn't make sense. And so when are the dead who died in Christ and the living who lived for Christ rewarded? It's at the moment of the second coming of Jesus. That's the part of the resurrection that Jesus says, those who have done good will come forth to the resurrection of what? To the resurrection of life. But now let me ask you, does the Bible tell us that this is the moment that they receive their reward? Absolutely. We're not going to read it, but you can read Matthew 16, 27, where Jesus says you will be rewarded when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Revelation 22 and verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly, and my what? And my reward is with me to give everyone according to his works. Now, here's my question. Do you suppose that the cases of these individuals who died in Christ and resurrect, and those who are alive in Christ and are taken to heaven, rewarded when Jesus comes, do you suppose that they had to appear before the judgment seat of Jesus? What do you think? Yes. Not a 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. It's very clear there that they had to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. And I'm going to, I'm going to share something really mind-boggling with you at this moment. Because most Christians don't realize that the judgment has three phases. 
The righteous are first of all investigated now in heaven in the judgment. When their case is analyzed and Jesus finishes analyzing it, he pronounces sentence. These are worthy of life. And when he comes the second time, he rewards them on the basis of the judgment which he has done before. I'm going to show you that in a minute. Notice, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now here's my key question. If we all are to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, where does that judgment take place? It takes place in heaven according to the Bible. We're going to notice that in a moment. So the judgment takes place in heaven. So where are we supposed to appear before the judgment seat of Christ? In heaven. Are we going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ when he comes in his second coming to take us to be with him? Why would we have to appear before his judgment seat when we get to heaven? He says, oh, by the way, there's a judgment we've got to do before you can stay here. His reward has come with him. Which means that their cases must have been decided when? Before. Are you with me or not? So you say, then how is it that you appear before the judgment seat of Christ? It's very simple. You don't appear in person. You appear through your record. Does God keep exact records of us in heaven? Do you know that God has another you written in heaven? With the smallest little detail, every thought, every feeling, every emotion, every work, every word is written there. There's an exact transcript in heaven of you. Almost another you in heaven, only it's not alive, it's written. And here's the interesting thing. See, I am personally on earth, but in heaven I'm in a book. Jesus is personally in heaven, but on earth he's in a book. In other words, there's an exact transcript of me up there. And when the judgment comes, I don't go personally there before God. I go through my what? Through my records. God is going to open up the books, and he's going to reveal my life to the smallest detail before the whole heavenly universe. You say, wow. How could I ever pass? We can't because we're not worthy. That's why we need to claim Jesus as our attorney. Because he never loses a case. You see, you have to retain the attorney because Jesus is not only our high priest, he is also the judge. And so he's our high priest who intercedes for us, but he's also the judge. So the judge is on our side. Would you like to go to trial if the judge was on your side? Praise the Lord. Nobody is worthy. Worthy is the lamb, the Bible says. You say then, why does he open the records? Listen, the purpose of opening the records is not to condemn you. The purpose of opening the records is to show the heavenly beings, look! This is Pastor Steve Bohr. i got to use myself as an example, of course. 
Yes, he committed many sins, but look, he claimed my forgiveness, my blood. Those sins were forgiven. And he received the Holy Spirit in his life to gain the victory over sin. Do you suppose, folks, we, we should bring him here? And the heavenly beings say, we have looked at every detail. You would be right to bring him here. Let's say the sentence is life. Oh, praise the Lord. And then when Jesus comes, he brings his what? He brings his reward to reward Pastor Boar with everlasting life. And you too. Now let's notice what it says in Acts chapter 10 and verse 42. Acts chapter 10 and verse 42. Very important verse. The Apostle Paul here says the following. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God, that is Jesus, to be the judge of whom? The living and the dead. Now, I can prove to you that we don't go to the judgment personally. You say, how's that? Would you care to tell me how a dead person could go up there? How much do the dead know before Jesus comes? How much? What, where are they while they're dead? In their graves. So how can they appear before the judgment seat of Christ then? If the judgment is in heaven and they're in their graves. Through the record of their lives. I want to read some texts here that speak about what happens when, when our name comes before the judgment. You see, God has to show that he is right in saving us. He has to show that he's just and merciful in saving us. Because the devil says, oh, they're sinners. How can you take them up there? They're sinners. Come on. And Jesus has to open the records and he has to prove. He has to say, yes, they were sinners. But look, they repented. They claimed the blood. They received the power of the Spirit in their lives. They abided in me. They remained in me. You see, God has to prove his case. What would you think of a judge? A criminal comes before him. And the judge, before any trial or anything, says, you're guilty. You're going to the electric chair. Somebody says, now wait a minute, isn't he going to have a trial? I need no trial. I know everything. How do you suppose people would feel about that? I think that judge would be deposed. Do you suppose God can simply say, oh, I don't need to judge these people. I know everything. I already know that they claimed the blood of Jesus or they didn't claim the blood of Jesus. So what's the use of having a trial? God doesn't need a trial. Who needs a trial? The heavenly universe needs a trial so that God can prove that he has been right in every single case that he has evaluated. The Bible says that our citizenship is in heaven. In Philippians chapter 3, we're citizens of heaven. We're just waiting to travel there, that's all. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. Notice this. This is a very interesting verse. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. I don't know whether you've read it in this context before, but it says there the following. And Jesus is speaking here. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. What does Jesus have up there? Our what? 
our name in the book of life. And now notice this, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Isn't that a marvelous verse? What is Jesus going to do? He's going to confess our what? Our name, which is in the book, before the Father and before the angels. In other words, he's up there to defend our case. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, your name is written in heaven. You see, what Jesus evaluates before his second coming is our name. Our record in the books. In other words, we are judged in absentia. We are absent physically, but through the records, we are present. In fact, if you read Revelation 14, go with me there. Revelation chapter 14 and verses 6 and 7. Very interesting uh, pair of verses here. Three great messages that, that God sends to the world shortly before his second coming. It says, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment will come. You're on the ball tonight. The hour of his judgment, what? Has come. In the Greek, it is an Past tense. This shows that the judgment, this judgment in heaven takes place before the second coming. You say, how do we know that? Because this is the first angel's message. The first angel says the hour of his judgment has come. But there's still a second message that needs to be given to the world after that. There's still a third message against the beast, his image, his mark, that needs to be given to the world. And then Jesus is seen coming on the clouds. So in the first angel's message, God says the hour of his judgment has come now. But there's still two other messages before Jesus comes. That shows that the judgment is not when Jesus comes. The judgment is when? In heaven, before he comes. That judgment is described in Daniel 7, where it says the judgment sat and the books were open. And it's talking about something that is happening in heaven. Now let me synthesize the last portion of our study tonight. How is Jesus garbed today? How is Jesus dressed today in heaven? Hebrews 8 says he's dressed as our what? High priest. But do you know he's not only our high priest, he's also the judge. You read John 5, 22 and 27. It says the father judges no one. He has commanded all judgment into the hands of the son because, the, because he is the son of man. In other words, Jesus in this period, is both the high priest, the intercessor, and the judge. And he's dressed as a high priest. When Jesus comes the second time, how is he going to be dressed? As a king. Correct? You can read it in Revelation 19. Verses 11 to 21, the second coming, he comes with the armies of heaven. It says he has many crowns on his head. The high priest had a mitre on his head, not many crowns. And then he, he has on his vesture written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Must he have changed clothes at some point? 
Did he cease being priest before he came? Did he cease being the judge investigating cases before he came? Absolutely, he did. Because when he comes, he's no longer priest. He comes as king of kings and lord of lords. And now he is going to physically take the kingdom that legally he won on the cross of Calvary. Daniel chapter 7 says that he's going to take that kingdom which he took away legally from the devil at the cross and which he will take physically. And it says in Daniel 7 that he will return the kingdom to the saints of the Most High. Let me make two or three remarks only about the second resurrection. Is there a second resurrection? How many resurrections did Jesus talk about? Two. When is the resurrection of life? When Jesus comes, right? Is that clear? Were those people judged before Jesus came? Were their cases examined? Why? Because God needs to find out what they did. No! Because God has to prove his case so that there'll be no doubts in the minds of the heavenly beings so that every case will be clear. God will leave no loose ends. Now what about the second resurrection? When do, when do those people resurrect? At the end of the thousand years. You say, how do we know that? Well, you don't have to be a King Solomon to figure it out. Say, how's that? The Bible speaks of the resurrection at the second coming as the first resurrection. Must there be a second resurrection? Of course. He wouldn't say first unless there was a second. When does that second resurrection take place? After the thousand years. How do we know that? Well, I've touched upon this before, but let me touch upon it again. Everybody in this life lives a first life, right? Short or long, first life. You die before Jesus comes, that'll be what your, which death? Is that eternal death? No, that's your first death. Now, are you going to resurrect to a second life? Yes? When will God's people resurrect to a second life? At the second coming. When will the wicked resurrect to a second life? After a thousand years. That is absolutely clear in Revelation 20. How do we know it? For the simple reason that after the millennium, the Bible speaks about second death. Always after the millennium. Second death is after the thousand years, which must mean that they came forth to their second life when? After the thousand years. And then the wicked are going to be judged. And I'm going to synthesize because our time has just about gone about what's going to happen after the thousand years. During the thousand years, we are going to go to heaven. We studied this last night, right? And you're going to have a working vacation. 1 Corinthians 6, 1-3 says that we're going to judge the world and we're going to judge angels. In other words, we are going to participate in the process of judging those who stayed behind. Do you think that there's going to be some people missing there that we thought should be there? That preacher who preached so nice? Do you think we're going to see some nasty people there that we never expected to see there? Yeah, so God is going to open the books for us. In fact, Revelation 20 verse 4 says judgment was committed to them. That is to those who resurrect in the first resurrection. The Apostle Paul says, like I mentioned in 1 Corinthians 6, that we will judge what? Angels. Which angels? The good ones? Why would you have to judge a good angel? 
It has to be the evil angels. During the thousand years, we will perform that work of judgment. See, the wicked will also be investigated before all of the heavenly beings. And then Jesus will come after the thousand years to reward them with destruction. Now let me mention one final point in closing. The Bible tells us that none of these people needed to perish because Jesus made the full and complete payment. What a waste for the money to stay in the bank. I pray to the Lord that no one here tonight will leave the money in the bank. We'll leave the merits of Jesus in the bank. I pray to the Lord that if we should die before he comes, that we'll resurrect in the first resurrection. And that as he analyzes our cases in heaven, that we will make sure that we have chosen Jesus as our high priest, who is also our judge. Because God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repent. Do you want to accept this invitation tonight? Did you raise your hand? You planning to be in the first resurrection? Praise the Lord. If we should die, if we're alive, no problem. We'll be translated from among the living. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you because you've given us in your word such a clear lesson about the judgment. We know, Lord, that the judgment is not for you because you know everything. The judgment is so that everyone in the vast universe will be able to see each case and be convinced that you have been right in every single case in the way that you have dealt with sin and sinners. There will be no loose ends. What a marvelous God you are. You care what we think. You want us to love you because we've seen who you are. I ask, Lord, that each person here might be on that sea of glass when Jesus comes that we might be able to live eternally with Jesus in that land where there will be no sorrow, no pain, no misery, no sickness, no death. Please, Lord Jesus, come soon. We thank you in your name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.